starting in verse 1. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken a seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary, and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect a tabernacle for, see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. But now, he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he all is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. All glory be to Christ. We thank you that he is the great I am. We thank you that he is the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. And Father, we thank you that, that we will forever sing his praise and his rule and his reign will never end. And Father, that is, that is our great hope. Our great hope is that one of these days our Lord Jesus will return with great power and glory, will judge both the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. And that because we've been united to Him by faith, we will reign with Him forever. And so, Father, we pray that You would sustain us and strengthen us. We pray that You would help us in this, uh, in this hour and give us uh, insight into Your Word and understanding. In Jesus' name, Amen. So there was a Baptist theologian in the late 1600s by the name of Nehemiah Cox. And uh, Nehemiah Cox, along with a few others, Benjamin Keach and some other Baptist theologians, they, they were all covenantal. That is, they believed in covenant theology. Nehemiah Cox started to write a treatise uh, concerning the covenants. But after he had finished working on the covenant with Abraham, he said that he did not need to actually write about the Mosaic Covenant or the New Covenant because what Dr. John Owen had done in his epistles, in the Epistle to the Hebrews commentary, 
said everything that he possibly could want to say about it. And so we come to the, the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Covenant and it is, it is this part of our understanding of covenant theology that in a sense uh, illustrates or reveals sort of one of the main distinctives of what we would call uh, Baptist covenant theology or 1689 federalism and so it is our understanding of this covenant that sets us apart in many ways. So what I'm going to do is, uh, in order to have mercy upon you, I'm going to give ten observations on the Mosaic Covenant. Now, of course, ten is symbolic, right? Because of the Ten Commandments. And so, but unlike the Ten Commandments, I have 14 subpoints under each main point. <laughs> some of these will be short, some of them won't. So we'll just see how we can move along. So here's the book of Exodus. And God brings his people out of the house of bondage. And in Exodus 19 and 20, he establishes this covenant with his people. And we have to understand that the Mosaic Covenant, and this is the first observation, the Mosaic Covenant was itself a national covenant. It was a covenant that was made with the nation of Israel. It was made with the physical seed of Abraham. And in fact, it was a covenant that was designed to perpetuate the land and the seed promises. In fact, you see this very early in the book of Exodus. For instance, in Exodus chapter 2, when the children of Israel are crying out to the Lord, the Lord hears them, and the reason He hears them is because He remembers His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then, in even more explicit terms, Exodus chapter 6, when uh, God is, is commissioning Moses, this is Exodus 6 and start at verse 2, it says, God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, or I am Yahweh, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but my name Yahweh I did not make known to them. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage and I have remembered my covenant. Now at that point, I remembered my covenant must be a reference to the covenant made with Abraham. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage, and I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, I will bring you to the land which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And so, what we actually see in the book of Exodus as this Mosaic covenant starts to unfold is that what God is doing is He is, he is identifying the nation, and He is, as it were, perpetuating the promises of land and seed and as God establishes this Mosaic covenant 
he establishes it in order to keep Israel as a separate and distinct people. This is one of the things that the Mosaic Law clearly does, is it separates the people from the peoples of the land as a distinct and holy people. Now, in order to be a part of this covenant people, of course, visible participation comes, again, through circumcision. But then there are other things that are added. For instance, the dietary laws. The dietary laws are added, again, to keep the people of Israel distinct from the nations around them. Right? So, the Mosaic Covenant was a national covenant made with the physical seed of Abraham perpetuating the land and seed promises. The second observation that I would make is this. The Mosaic Covenant is not a covenant of grace. Alright? So you remember we were talking uh, uh, yesterday how the classic view basically sees one covenant of grace administered differently and they would say the same thing holds with the Mosaic Covenant. And so it is this point that actually is one of the distinctives of, of a Baptistic perspective on the covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is not a covenant of grace, but third, so we're moving along pretty quickly, right? The promises of the Gospel are revealed in the Mosaic Covenant through types and shadows. So, understand that, that we said yesterday that the promise, the first gospel promise in Genesis 3.15 is unfolded or revealed, the words of the, the, words of the confession, through uh, various steps. Okay? So in other words, the promise of the gospel is, is developing and growing and the, the colors and the contours are being filled in by these subsequent covenants that God is making. And so the Mosaic Covenant comes along, and although it's not the covenant of grace, the promises of the Gospel are in fact revealed through the Mosaic Covenant. Alright? So, this is, this is uh, point four now, and this is how this starts to get fleshed out. So when you think of the Mosaic Covenant, you probably think in terms of works. Right? I do, I think here the Mosaic Covenant, and of course, what is, what is the fundamental principle uh, of the covenant? It's seen in Leviticus 18.5, which is, do this and live. Okay? Now, the Mosaic Covenant is, uh, in a sense, what it does is it, it displays and it reaffirms the covenant of works not necessarily as a formal covenant, all right, but the principle of the covenant of works, do this and live, is reaffirmed in the Mosaic Covenant. All right? Now this is, this is vitally important, by the way, because we said last night that Jesus as the last Adam comes and fulfills the covenant of works. How does he fulfill the covenant of works? He fulfills the covenant of works as it was reaffirmed in the Mosaic Covenant. Because Jesus, according to Galatians 3, uh, or Galatians 4, was born un of a woman under the law, 
so that he would redeem those who were under the curse of the law, having become the curse for us. So he's born under the Mosaic covenant. He's born under the Mosaic law. He fulfills that law perfectly, and in so doing, fulfills the principle of the covenant of works, do this and live. Now, the, the Mosaic covenant contains both, and this is, the, the language is important, it contains both principles of law and grace. Alright? In, in other words, um, the Mosaic covenant is not just pure law, but neither is it an administration of the covenant of grace. It contains principles of both law and grace. So you have to do this and live given to people who are already dead. Right? So who, of course, could ever keep this law? The answer is nobody. But under the Old Covenant, there was also a sense in which, which the commands of God exposed the sins of the people. That, that's what law does. Right? Nobody reads the Ten Commandments and then goes to the Sermon on the Mount and reads Jesus' interpretation of, of the law, and nobody says, wow, I scored 85%. The law actually exposes sin in me. It's, it's through the law that comes the knowledge of sin. And so these, these uh, commands, yes, there were commands that were given to Israel so that it would operate as a civil society and so forth, but there were moral laws that were given, and no Israelite could ever keep those. And so the law exposed and increased their sin. In fact, this morning we read from Galatians 3, Paul asks this amazing question, why the law then, Galatians 3.19, why the law then, it was given to increase transgression. You know what the law does? The law, Romans 7, provokes within us the very things it commands or prohibits. This, this actually is a reflection of how profoundly broken and sinful we are, right? And, and by the way, if you have kids, you know how this principle works. It's easy, all right? So you have, um, I always think of, of a big giant VCR that we had when the kids were little, and Zach would walk around with a bottle bobbing out of his mouth, and he would walk over and he would start playing with the VCR, and we would tell him, of course, don't touch it. At which point he got down on his knees and said, Dear mother and father, please forgive me for this violation because I know that I violated your will, which is holy, righteous, and good, and I pray for your pardon. Right? No. No, he actually looked at us and then wait for us to turn away and then start to stick his hand up there again. Right? It was almost as if the, 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 the boundary, the don't touch this, was... was was just too much and arousing the idea of you know what that means is I need to touch this okay? now that VCR stopped working at, at, at one point and we took it in to get repaired and the guy says 
you know there's a bunch of dried milk in here. And so he, what he was doing was actually sticking his bottle into the, the thing where you put the tape and squeezing the milk in. So, so he's a, he was a terrible violator of law, right? But it, it's, a, it's a principle. And here's the thing is we never outgrow it. We never outgrow it. And so we hear what God tells us to do where God draws the lines and there's something inside of us that says get as close to those lines as you possibly can get. Stick your toe over when nobody's looking, right? And so the law is, is, is the exposure of our sins, but it also, in a sense, increases our sins. But in the law itself, God never left His people there. God actually makes provision through atoning sacrifice for the forgiveness of His, of his people's sins because He's merciful. And so... It is, it is this very principle of law that exposes and increases transgression, which then points to the necessity of the provision that God has made for the forgiveness of those transgressions. And so when I say that the principles of law and grace are both operative in the Mosaic Covenant, it is the law that is functioning to show us our sin and then to point us to the provision and the provision is in the atoning sacrifices that God Himself provides. And by the way, those atoning sacrifices don't ultimately point to themselves. They ultimately point to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Right? So number five, the law was given in a powerless way to powerless people to point to something beyond itself. So in a sense, when God gives the law, He gives it to a people who don't have the power to keep it and inherent in the law itself is no power for the people. So he gives a powerless law to powerless people in a sense to point them to something beyond themselves. So Paul puts it like this in, in, in Romans 8.3. He says, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And so the law was, was powerless but it pointed, in a sense, to the gospel typified in both the priesthood and the sacrifices. Sixth observation. The Mosaic Law, or the Mosaic Covenant, was by necessity temporary. So if, if you still are open to uh, Hebrews... Look at Hebrews 7. In Hebrews 7, verse 18, it says, For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. And this, by the way, is talking about the specifically the priesthood. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is bringing in of a better hope 
through which we draw near to God. And so the writer to the Hebrews makes it, it makes it perfectly clear if perfection could have come through the law, if perfection could have come through the Levitical uh, priesthood and the sacrifices, then there would have been no need for another priest, but the law made nothing perfect. And so it was temporary, and that's why in Rome, uh, Hebrews uh, 8.13, when he said a new covenant, he made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. In other words, when God gives the, the, the Mosaic covenant, he gives it with a planned obsolescence. In other words, he gives it and it has a shelf life. He doesn't give it as, as an everlasting statute or everlasting covenant. It was planned obsolescence. This is Paul's point, by the way, in Galatians 3, 19 and then 24 to 25. And so the, the, the old covenant itself was designed to be a temporary measure from the time of the promise made to Abraham, this is, this is Paul's argument in Galatians 3, to the time when Christ, the seed of Abraham, actually came. The law then serves as a, as a tutor, right, to do what? To lead us to Christ. But once it's done its job of leading us to Christ, then it is in essence obsolete. Now, the Old Covenant in terms of, of its theological reality had been rendered obsolete because of Christ and because of Christ's mediator, uh, mediatorial role and Christ's priesthood and Christ's ministry in the heavenly tabernacle and Christ's mediation of a new covenant which is enacted on better promises and based on a better sacrifice. And so Jesus, when he comes into this world, he renders the priesthood, the temple, and the sacrifices absolutely useless for the very simple reason that he came to fulfill the very thing to which the Mosaic Law was pointing to. This, by the way, is what go, makes going back to Judaism so grievous in the book of Hebrews. Why go back to the shadows when the reality is already here? So, when, uh, when I was a student at Biola, Ariel and I got engaged. We got married very young. Uh, it worked out for us, but I don't generally recommend it. Now, How old am I? Uh, I was 12. I was from Arkansas. <laughs> no, I was 20. Ariel was 30. No. <laughs> Ariel was 22. I was 20. So, when we got engaged, she lived over in, in near Palm Springs with her grandparents. And I was, of course, in student housing at Biola. And I had this picture of her right next to my bed. It's this stunning black and white picture. She's absolutely beautiful. And this may sound a little corny to you, but as uh, I would go to bed at night, I after maybe get a chance to talk to her on the phone. Of course, in those days, you had to have lots of quarters so that you could keep pumping them into the, the uh, phone booth. You guys don't even know what that is. But, um, and so we'd go, to, we'd go to, I'd go to bed and I would take that picture and I kissed the picture, oh. right? 
Okay, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, so we end up, of course, getting married. Now, what, what, what would you think of me if after we got married, I put the picture on the pillow next to me, and when I went to bed, I didn't kiss her, I continued to kiss the picture. You would think, you, you're an idiot, right? And you're an idiot because that's a picture, and the real thing is right next to you, right? And so in a real sense, to go back to Judaism was going back to the picture when the reality was already there, right? And so when Jesus comes, He is the fulfillment of all of this, and so the new covenant, which we'll talk about tomorrow, the better covenant has come. But it is the old that points to the new as the very fulfillment of the old. And so with that fulfillment, the old is fulfilled and then superseded by the new. So the disappearance of the old is the declaration of its fulfillment and, and the permanency of the new in Jesus Christ. So John Owen makes this, uh, really if, if you read Owen's, um, it's Hebrews 8, 6 to 13 in his commentary, massive commentary on Hebrews, he makes this wonderful statement. He says, all the glorious institutions of the law were at best but as stars in the sky of the church and therefore were all to disappear at the rising of the sun of righteousness. So because Christ is the true, the heavenly reality, the shadows of the old priesthood sacrifice covenant have become obsolete and they've been replaced. Number seven, and this is this is a little expansion on number six, and that is the old covenant was in and of itself imperfect and ineffective. So th there was a sense in which even the um, even the Jews understood this, right? So in the, in Acts thirteen, there's this. Um, <laughs> it's really great. So Paul's preaching in uh, Pisidian Antioch, and he is preaching and he says at verse 36 he says for David after he served the purpose of God in his own generation fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay but when God but he whom God raised did not undergo decay therefore let it be known to you brethren that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and through him everyone who believes is freed from all the things which you could not be freed through the law of Moses this is, this is a, a, a profoundly important text that as Paul's preaching in the synagogue, he's saying, listen, Jesus actually frees you from the very things that the law of Moses could never free you from. In fact, later in, uh, in Acts 15, when they had the, the controversy in the Jerusalem council, Peter stands up and listen to what he says. So remember, they're talking about how much of, of the Mosaic Covenant do the Gentiles need to be under when they become Christians? And Peter says this, he says, Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus 
in the same way as they are also. That unbearable yoke was the law. And so Peter says, why? We couldn't bear it. Why in the world would we want to put it on these new disciples? And so, of course, the law could never save, right? Um, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified, Paul says in Galatians 2.16. Uh, Romans 3.20, uh, through the works of the law, no flesh will be justified, but it's through the, uh, through the law that comes the knowledge of sin. The law could not give righteousness. The law could not impart righteousness. So Paul argues in Galatians 3, if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died in vain. In other words, if it was possible for you to be righteous through keeping the law, then Christ died in vain. The law could not give life. Galatians 3.21 If the law was given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have come through the law. And so the Old Covenant was imperfect, ineffective, it was planned obsolescence, it was temporary from the beginning. So, when we get to the Gospel, this is point eight, when we get to the Gospel, the New Covenant is not remodeled Judaism. Jesus Christ makes Judaism obsolete and outmoded. In other words, He is the grand fulfillment of everything that that Old Covenant pointed to. And so, again, we reiterate, the New Covenant is not some administration of the Covenant of Grace. By the way, you understand that if that's what the Old Covenant was, just or, or the New Covenant, just a, a, a different administration of the Covenant of Grace, then it's not new. Here's the amazing thing. You get to the New Covenant, and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the writer to the Hebrews, by the way, and Jesus, when he inaugurates it at the Lord's Supper, says it's new. Not just renewed, not just refurbished, but new. And so the new covenant is, is uh, not just Judaism rehashed. So that old covenant was typological. It, it uh, in types and shadows points to Christ. It reveals sin. It's pedagogical. Right? So the law is the... Some of our translations say the law is a tutor that leads us to Christ. Okay. Uh, the law is... Anybody have a different translation there? Schoolmaster. Right? So here's, here's, my, here's my problem with that translation. The, 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 the Greek term paedagogos, we hear that, we see pedagogue or, or tutor, we think. And we think of the nice white-haired old lady that helps you with geometry because you can't get it. Let me help you with that, right? That's not the idea in, in Greek. So the Pythagogos was actually a slave who was assigned to the master's children. And what he did is he, by, by threat of corporal punishment, made sure that they got to school on time, made sure that they did their homework, he oversaw their studies, okay? And he knew how to use the rod. And so, if I were translating Galatians for, let's say, the, uh, the new revised BB version, which you'll never see, I would say the law is a corrections officer to lead us to Christ. 
You know what corrections officers do? They make sure the inmates get to where they're supposed to be on time, when they're supposed to be there. They make sure that they're there for count. They make sure that they're, that they're doing what they're supposed to do, of course, with threat of punishment. And that was the law. The law wasn't some sweet old lady that was showing you how to do math. The law was a corrections officer that was ready to bust your chops if you got out of line. And so here, the, the law is, is pointing us, it's driving us to Christ. In a real sense, you could say this. The law itself never pointed to itself as the remedy for man's problem and sin, but was always pointing outside, beyond itself, to its very fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And that means, number nine, the Old Covenant's requirements of perfect obedience were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus comes and He is the seed of Abraham. He is the one who in His priesthood and sacrifice fulfills the types and shadows. He is the one who, who actually lives that the obedience to that law which we could never live and then pays the penalty for the curse of a broken covenant which we could have never paid. And so the old covenant is abrogated or abolished in Christ because it's fulfilled in Christ. Right? And that brings me to the last, last point, and that is the Mosaic Law, although as a covenant is abolished, the moral law is still in effect being written on our hearts in the New Covenant, and the Mosaic Law as divine revelation should still be understood in light of 2 Timothy 3.16. So let me, let me just break those down for you, for you quickly. So the Mosaic Law as a covenant is abolished, but the moral law is still in effect. Okay. So, you understand that the, the Mosaic Law is, is broken down into three parts. Okay. I, I, I actually think, contrary to a lot of people, um, I think that a tripart division of the law is, is biblical and also valuable for helping us understand law. And so you have moral law, and then you have ceremonial law, and you have civil law. And by the way, our Confession of Faith, the 1689 Confession, addresses this very issue in chapter 19. It's worth reading. And so the ceremonial law is clearly fulfilled in Jesus Christ, in His priesthood and His sacrifice. The civil law, and our, our confession addresses this, the civil laws that pertain to Israel as a nation, in a sense, are now abrogated, but they serve a purpose of teaching us principles. Okay? And then you have the moral law. The moral law is, of course, summarized in the Ten Commandments, but that moral law the moral law gets codified on Sinai in the Ten Commandments, but understand this, the moral law existed before Sinai. And it exists after Sinai. And so the fun, this fundamental idea that somehow you pit the law of Moses against the law of Christ is really not true. Because what happens in the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, 
31 to 34, what is written on our hearts? The law of God. What part of the law of God is written on your heart? Did God write, don't boil a kid in its mother's milk on your heart? He, no, that's not what he wrote on your heart. He wrote his moral law on your heart. Right? That's what's written on our heart in, in the New Covenant. And so, this idea of, of the Mosaic Law as a covenant being abolished does not mean that the law of God is now somehow no longer relevant to the people of God. Okay? That's just simply not true. And that brings us to the second part of what I said, and that is, so the Mosaic Law as divine revelation is still understood in light of 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is what? God-breathed. When Paul writes that, what does he explicitly have in mind? Training, correcting, preparing the righteousness. Okay, absolutely true. But I'm thinking when he says all Scripture, the Old Testament. He is looking at the Old Testament when he says all Scripture is God-breathed. And then he turns around and he says all Scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable for doctrine, correction, reproof, and instruction in righteousness. In other words, the revelation of God in the Old Testament actually can help, it, it helps us be instructed in the ways of righteousness, okay? And so the man of God may be thoroughly furnished, equipped for every good work. And so, when you hear this, this language, by the way, John Owen is a, is a perfect um, model of this, because he saw the full abrogation of the Mosaic Covenant, and yet he also saw the perpetuity of the moral law of God, okay? And so, uh, we're not under the Mosaic Law. We're not under it as, as a way of justification. We're not under it as uh, the way of salvation. Jesus Christ has come and He has fulfilled all of the obligations that are, that are a reflection of the covenant of works. He has paid the fit penalty for the curse of a broken law. And it is in Him that we're actually freed from the curse and freed from that law. So here's the important thing to remember. God did not give the law for you to be saved. He gave the law to show you you need to be saved. Bunyan, this is attributed to Bunyan, I don't doubt it. Bunyan said this, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. And so, the new covenant, as we'll see tomorrow, is not only new, but it's better. We could say this, way better. Amen? Alright, well, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you for every part of your word. We know that there's not a single part of it that is irrelevant or meaningless. We thank you that it is uh, the self-disclosure of, of you, and we pray that you would give us hearts that rejoice in what Jesus has done for us, 
by redeeming us from the curse of the law. And so, Father, we ask that you would receive our praise and pray that you would uh, watch over us this afternoon in our activities and keep everyone safe and, and return us here again tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.